My name is Jeffrey Wittenhagen, and I'm a published author slash writer. Video games, both old and new, are my passion. I recently had a successful Kickstarter for my NES collector's book called The Complete NES, and I'm currently doing a massive overhaul of my original book called Hidden Gaming Gems, uh, creating a new NES game to go with it. I also have tons of projects in the works. My blog is at hagensalley.wordpress.com, and I'm on a lot of forums as a Subcon 3. And we've got Kyle. Hey, hey. I'm big into uh, no death runs, high score runs, uh, collector of all things, vintage and retro. Uh, pretty much anything video game related. Also collect figures, vinyl, VHS, tap handles, old beer signs, and old beer steins. And we've got Kevin. Greetings, gamers. Kevin Kill here. I am the creator of KVK Box. You can visit at kvkbox.com. It is a YouTube channel that does Let's Plays, Long Plays, Disc Golf, and a lot of different analysis on video games. Please call our number, leave a voicemail or a text message at 262-264-VGBS. Okay. All right, so... um. This is going to be completely uh, different than if you've ever... Have you ever been on a podcast before, David? Uh, yeah, I was uh, a couple years ago, uh, about the time we were testing uh, the Dino Legs, an early version of the game that Jeff helped us test yeah. a couple years ago. I was on a podcast from a fellow in New York. Uh, that one was... Uh, yeah, so that was a while ago. Well, I'll explain one thing is we are completely unconventional unscripted we don't plan anything and we go with the flow <laughs> so basically like i've been on podcasts as a guest as well for like my kickstarter and everybody is all rehearsed scripted and things ours right. is completely el natural so um okay so basically um we've already started the podcast as you've already heard we have a guest on today um his name is david schroeder right did i say it right the last you name? bet you, Excellent. You bet. Right. Yeah, everybody mispronounces my last name. It's all good. <laughs> but yours is yours is easy. Um, so David, um, I have your bio from a, f- a couple different websites that I put together. So you have to let me know if I, I have it right. Okay. Okay. So David uh, is a game programmer from back in the day. Um, programmed. The, I call you the Apple II master. He mastered the Apple mm. II on some awesome platforming games. You're an author of several best-selling home computer games from the 80s, including Crisis Mountain, Dino Eggs, um, as well as Short Circuit and a Ho-Ho-Ho Five Family Christmas Games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) That was the last of the titles that uh, had a publisher back in those days, yeah. All of David's games have a uh, distinct look to them. Um, the two standouts, obviously, would be the Dino Eggs, which he's um, you know on the podcast to promote his new version, as well as the classic Crisis Mountain, a volcano erupting goodness. I call them single-screen platforming arcade-style action games. Very long title. <laughs> but, I love it. But yeah, the, the irony was is that like Kyle remembers this. We, when we used to run the Video Game Masters Club many years ago, I was obsessed with like the Donkey Kong-style games. And I was trying to find a connotation on how, like, how to classify them. And I always called them single-screen, platforming, arcade-style action games. And then like somehow you know, we got in contact, and I started playing yours. I'm like, this is exactly the style I want to play. <laughs> like It was yeah. perfect. Yeah. It's really interesting how the culture has changed, and you know, one of my big challenges in 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 creating the reboot, the revival of Dino Eggs, Dino Eggs Rebirth, is well, what is that old game style now? How do you grow that old game style mm-hmm. and stay true to what you want to stay true to, and still make it new and bigger? <laughs> so yeah, it's 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 quite a 
uh, a puzzle. I love the one of the posts because uh, David, you're posting on uh, Facebook and social media some of your updates yep. and things. And one of the classic posts is, is that like you're like back on the Apple II when I programmed Dynamics, I was limited to only three. Was it three moving characters at once? Well, uh, I, I had to I had to limit how much the screen changed from frame to frame because you couldn't by any wild stretch of the imagination, change the whole screen for each frame and have anything faster than one frame per second. Yeah. Uh, so you had to choose very, very carefully how much you changed. And so uh, the baby dinos were just, you know, one element of things that needed to be animated at the screen. And I, I could only have three of those on the screen at a time. And I tell you, it was such a real mind-blowing experience when the the programmer I've been working now with for a couple of years, Eric Farrow, uh, he was a 10 year old fan of the original Dino Eggs, you know, when it <laughs> came out and, uh, he and I have since, you know, developed a relationship and have been, you know, uh, joined on this, uh, Dino Eggs rebirth project. And when he first showed me a screen with hundreds of little baby dinos crawling all over it, that was the picture I saw. <laughs> yeah, it was just like whoa. It's like, and and the same thing with boulders. The same thing with uh, snakes and creatures. That, you know, that and spiders. I mean, there's some screens in the new game with dozens and dozens of spiders at the same time, all going down their threads in different at different times. And it really is when, particularly when you know the old game, it really is kind of a a mind blowing thing. And we've tried to use that in the new game. Not for the sake of just throwing things on the screen, but for fun, to have fun with it, to evoke memories of the earlier game, and, and but of also to stretch it, to stretch it in, in new and unexpected directions while keeping it the same core game. And that's that's the challenge, because you start pulling out threads of the old fabric, and if you pull out the wrong thread, or if you pull out the thread too much the fabric falls apart. Absolutely. So it's really yeah. crazy trying to figure out how do we stay true to the old game and still make it new. Yeah, and now with your the first one when you were doing the remake of Dino Eggs that I was messing around with in, te in beta testing, um, yeah. you kept an original mode. Did you keep an original mode in Rebirth? Definitely. There's awesome. definitely a Dino Eggs classic mode uh, in the new game. And in fact, people are already arguing about is that easier or more difficult than playing the game on some of the original 8-bit machines. Uh, mm. I have one person who swears that the... So when I refer to Dino Eggs Classic, I am referring to that component of Dino Eggs Rebirth, because uh, that's what we call it in, in the new product. Yes. And uh, I have a fellow in uh, Europe who swears it's too difficult. It's much harder uh, than the uh, original game. And then I have another person who wrote a... In fact, I just posted hit this critique on on our my blog on my game website, dinoeggsrebirth.com, where he analyzed the differences between the Commodore 64 original 8-bit uh, version and this new Dino Eggs classic within Dino Eggs Rebirth. And he very convincingly says it's easier in the, in the Dino Eggs classic. Did you program the Commodore one? Uh, no, no. Uh, the Commodore one was an adaptation yeah. done by a fellow named Leonard Bertoni. And I've made several attempts to try to find and contact him just for the heck of it, and I have not been successful. I, 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 he's out there somewhere, uh, but uh, he and I weren't in touch. I think it, we might have been very briefly in touch at the time. I was very much in touch with the fellow who did the IBM version of, of Dino Eggs. Uh, he and I consulted quite a bit at the time. Uh, but not so much the uh, the Commodore version. I did the Apple and and made the notes and printed out the code and everything for the for the for the ports. Yeah, because I never um, played the Apple II version, but I played the Commodore version. The Commodore version sold, I think, uh, more than the Apple version. And when I hear from people in Europe, a heck of a lot of Dynawakes fans are in Europe, and and the Commodore, I think, sold. I think it's, I guess, country by country, it's different, but there was a lot of Commodore 64 over there as well. Yeah, and 
It's just like it's interesting though because I mean I never played Crisis Mountain, so that was it's unfortunate because I watched a video of it and I'm like, oh, <laughs> that game looks amazing <laughs> too. And um, yeah, that was my first game. Yeah. Oh, that that's yeah, it's awesome. So that you definitely need to do a rebirth of that one if you can get the rights. <laughs> well, I've got people. I, you know, I'm in I'm in touch with as many as the fans who you know will be in touch with me or consent to be on my lists and so forth. But there's certainly. Uh, Crisis Mountain specific people and they're short circuit fewer of short circuit I think that game <laughs> didn't sell as well as Dino Eggs but if you know once you you hook onto a game it's like that's it that's the one and that's the one you remember oh absolutely we we thrive on nostalgia here <laughs> I always uh, have a fondness in my heart for Crisis Mountain because it was the first, and it was you know it was it was you always remember your first time I guess <laughs> yeah. yeah. So so would you consider Dino Eggs as more of a like a refining of the Crisis Mountain formula? Um, it's a different style game, but I mean the, if you look at a screenshot side by side, you can see the you know the definitely the um, that they're similar in you know, graphical style and the platforms and everything. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point and a, and a good question. You're, you're right. I When I finished Crisis Mountain, I really was thinking, well, what can I do now? What can I do better? What can I do more? And and that definition was changing all around me at that time. I mean, I I assume you guys are not as old as I am. I I, <laughs> I know I know your your background, and yeah, I'm not the same age as you. I, yeah. I, We're in our thirties. Yeah, yeah. I was born in uh, 1954. From your bio, I know you graduated from Yale, correct? In 77. In 77, before we were born. Wow. So when I went to Yale, I took one computer class at Yale, uh, and I got the worst grade I've ever gotten in any class in high school or college in that one computer uh, science course, because when I took that course, uh, Yale was very, very proud to have just bought its first closet size computer. Oh, yeah. Was it a ticker tape? Uh, It was a magnetic tape and they were extremely yep, yep. proud with that because we didn't have to do punch cards yeah, anymore ticker or ticker anymore. tape <laughs> wow. and uh, that's that's what i used in that course and i did not give a single second of thought that only five years later i might be making my living writing anything for these <laughs> kinds of machines let alone games yeah because that's that's the irony is that like for the listeners David, actually, your major is in music, correct? That that's correct. And he's actually um, written, you know, musicals. And so, like, there's I've actually done a little bit of, you know, a little bit of research, and like the musicals are are outstanding. And it's like it's crazy how you said that you did terrible at like your computer programming class. That's awesome. Yeah, it really. Yeah, and I had this, you know, as we all do when we're we're younger. I had this idea of who I was or who I thought I was, and you know, I thought, well, I'm a creative person, and I really need to be creative, and I think that's true. But at the time, that meant, well, surely then I'm just taking this computer course because it's a, a, a science, you know, a type of prerequisite, you know, mm-hmm. something I had to do just to fill out the, the, the breadth of my degree. Um, I didn't, you know, like I say, I, I, creativity and computer science in my mind at that time were mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. And it was only, like I say, if just a handful of years later where I saw, of course, the extraordinary evolution of coin-operated machines in the uh, <laughs> arcades. And I know I know, Dino, D- uh, D- Donkey Kong is one of your favorites, too, and it's on your uh, list of 10 best of all time. Or, oh, yeah. I appreciate that. I often make the analogy, and this is this is my experience at the time. I often make the analogy between Donkey Kong and Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, because when Walt Disney did the first animated film, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, the first feature animated film, nobody in the world thought that these obviously artificial hand-drawn figures could interest anybody for longer than five or six minutes. Nobody in the world thought that would be the case. And then Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs came out, and people laughed with the dwarfs and Snow White, cried with the dwarfs and Snow White. It was a 
complete game changer. It transcended cinema. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Donkey Kong was a similar thing in the video, video game. Before Donkey Kong, you cheered, you laughed, you, you know, you you swore when you you your asteroids thing blew up on you. I mean, you 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 were involved. But in Donkey Kong, there was something transcendent that happened. You were that little guy on the screen in a way that the earlier games didn't quite get at. Yeah, it was like the, the for the first time with Donkey Kong, it told a story. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. that is it. And And the technology always blows people away when new things come out and they're technologically advanced. But what sticks is the story. Mm-hmm. What sticks is the story. There are many, many movies and video games we know about over the last decades where, oh my gosh, it blew my mind for the first five minutes. Yeah. But if it doesn't have a story that keeps you going, and yeah, you're right, Donkey Kong had enough of a character and enough of a story that it really it really made me think, oh my gosh, I have to try to do something like this. <laughs> Yeah, it's like the uh, the ambiance of the levels, too, allowed you to, like a book, actually create your own story without having to write a whole bio or backlog. Yeah. And that's yeah. actually where Crisis Mountain and Dino Eggs, like in Dino Eggs, you can create your own story as you're playing. Well, thank you. I, I really, with Crisis Mountain, was basically just trying to sort of do Donkey Kong. And it is a different game. It's not a, <laughs> it's, it's not a rip-off. It's its own game. Oh, it's definitely not a rip-off. You, do, you can do a lot of cool things in Crisis Mountain, such as like crawling underneath certain, in certain little caverns. I'm very pleased with the variations I fit in there. The crawling, you can pick up the shovel, you can lose the shovel. Crawling behind the volcano. That's yeah. awesome because, you know, then you're, you know, dealing with different parts that you can go behind. Right. And you know all I do to hide the guy behind there is redraw the rectangle of the lava cone uh in pure orange each frame. So each frame uh, I'm redrawing the orange on top of the little guy so that it looks like he's hidden behind the lava tube of orange. And, you know, every frame I'm redoing that because there is no underlying system to, you know, define depth or define sprites and, you know, order of drawing order. None of that is in there. So it's all just figuring out how to get those color dots where you want them and you got to put them there by hand. It's there's sort well, of a handcrafted aspect to it. It's pretty intense. It's actually, yeah. that's actually awesome. Now, um, now programming back in the day, like I think of it as like the whole story in my mind is that you have like two styles of programmers uh, from back in the day. You have the guys that are sitting there creating programs, and then once they create their game, they sell to the publisher. And then you have the ones that are attached to a publisher, and they're kind of writing them like an author. Like, you know, when while they're producing the game. So yeah. what was the ambiance like when you were programming for, for companies like back in the day? Yeah, thanks. Uh, that's a good question. When I started, the first model that you said of the two you, the two you said, the first is the only one that existed. Mm-hmm. Uh, there weren't enough companies of enough stature or experience or size to know what they could do by hiring a person, let alone a team of people, and having them in-house. That did evolve over the end of the years, 84, 85, 86. That, yeah. that started to take over. But the golden age for me was when the only way to do it was one guy sitting in his garage or in his attic or in his bedroom and figuring out what to do with every bit and bite. I'm kind of a, I'm an introvert. Uh, I do work with <laughs> like others. I'm not a total recluse. Uh, but I, I thrive kind of on my own. So th- the golden age for me was before uh, the computers got so complicated that you had to have teams to write stuff. And before companies got up to speed and figured out, hey, maybe we should hire people to start doing things like movies do now, where you're copying, you do a concept and you do uh, focus groups to refine the concept. And it sort of sounds like everyone else's concept. Instead of your own. Yeah. 
more more corporate. You know, I'm I'm exaggerating, but it sort of moved toward that in the years, the mid '80s. It loses the artistic feel. Well, you know, I'm kind of this guy who just does his own thing, and so I'm I'm biased. Yeah. Uh, and what's really amazing about it is, you know, every bit and bite was exactly where I put it. It stayed exactly where I put it. <laughs> the director's ultimate director's cut. <laughs> there you go. It's kind of like a direct uh, connection with me and my audience. And it really was a very brief period of time when that was even possible. So it was pretty amazing stuff. Now, um, that actually reminds me a lot of what's currently going on in gaming on in the homebrew community. Because I'm, I'm heavily into the like NES homebrew community, where they're currently creating new games for the original console and releasing it on cartridges. That is amazing. And the That's same amazing. thing has been happening with Commodore as well, as people are still releasing games. But it seems like Commodore's going back into like companies again in the homebrew community. Whereas like Nintendo, though, there's people creating games and there's like it's one person. And they're creating everything. And you might have now a guy who does music that'll help somebody out, but it's still yeah. that one person is drawing every bite and every bit in, yeah. in the specific yeah. spots. And it, it does feel more personal when you play somebody's homebrew game than if I played, um, I don't know, uh, Contra or, you know, like a, a classic Nintendo game. It feels like it was done by like a big company. Whereas these homebrew games, like, they feel polished, but they feel like more personal. Yeah, I I'm actually amazed how, and that that's great stuff that's going on that you're describing, and it, it happens on other platforms too. I've been Absolutely. on a number of retro sites, and there's old Atari twenty six hundred guys who are doing that in the in um, that world. Yes, absolutely. And what surprises me is that the general popular culture for games still seems to deny or discourage individual authorship or or attribution there are exceptions of course yeah yeah books you know there always been some books that are more formulaic or corporate but there's always been the association of individuals name with a book with a few exceptions mm -hmm. movies people now more or less subscribe to the director as being the primary author of a film. And of course, it's a collaborative effort. And yet, you know, basically, if you really like a movie, you probably know who directed it. And and somehow with video games, that's still a pretty rare thing that you know the name. And I that's too bad because I, it's individual authorship is just as, uh, rewarding and and true for some video games as for books and movies. So it's just kind of odd to me that the culture just it doesn't kind of encourage that somehow. Yeah, and even some of the games, like it's almost impossible to find out who off who created some of the games because even in the credits they don't say. Yeah. So like there was, yeah. a, there was a perfect example. I was watching, um, you know, a review and they're like, uh, I have no clue who created this game because the authors and the, the developers and the programmers and everybody were not in the credits. So they, yeah. they didn't even know to like ask about like, it was a Namco game and like Namco wouldn't even acknowledge it or <laughs> it's like craziness though. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. it's one of those things where it's like, I guess a lot of people didn't care at one point and that's the wrong answers that they got into that rut. Well, there's corporate cultures that are more in that direction. I, I think it's fair to say without being critical or, or it's painting with a broad brush, but the uh, Japanese software culture tends to be more about uh, faceless groups and less about individuals. Now, to be sure, yes, they are, you know, some have poked through that, thank goodness, because you know the genius who who was primarily behind some of their the games, of course, need to be known. But mm -hmm. yeah, it's a cultural thing. It's a cultural thing. Yeah, they're very, very humble out in that culture. And it's actually worse to stick out <laughs> than to be humble. So, Yeah, I think that's the tradition there. Yeah, yeah that yeah. is true. 100%. Yeah, that's the tradition. Definitely. So, so one thing I like to do every time that I, um, I interview anybody or anybody's like on the podcast or anything... I want to hear your favorite story from back in the day related to programming or gaming in general, like something crazy that happened. 
<laughs> well, I, I may disappoint you here, guys. I, I'm a pretty boring person. Uh, I, I most enjoyed, I, I'm not an extrovert, but I really did enjoy going to some of the early uh, CES shows, and they're still going on. Uh, and back then, one of the publishers, uh, you know, made sure, flew me out to Chicago so I could show the game. I met Adam West, the original TV Batman. That's, that's cool. That's amazing. That's pretty cool. Kevin's he, a huge Batman fan. Yeah. He uh, came up and he was probably someone's uh, special guest at their booth. And so he came up to our booth and, and said, hey, show me your game. And I went through my spiel, showed everyone. I had a spiel worked out where I showed everyone that, you know, the highlights and of the game pretty quickly. And that was pretty cool. Nice. See, that that's an awesome story right there. That's excellent. Here's, here's another one. I My sister-in-law went through Hong Kong and discovered that my games at the time were being sold, just openly ripped off. Hong Kong <laughs> is one of those cities like Shanghai where it's like they don't recognize anyone else's copyright or patents or anything. So she could just stop in a store and she said, oh, I want a game called Crisis Mountain. And they just, in front of her, they literally just took out a packaged version of that game took it out of the package put it in the computer disk drive in front of her face copied it in front of her <laughs> xeroxed the original uh, uh instruction sheet in front of her slipped them both into a sandwich bag and uh, sold it to her for a dollar wow that's an amazing story <laughs> black market so stuff i I said, okay, now I am a man because I have been ripped off in Hong Kong. Yes. You're not truly alive until you've been ripped off in Hong Kong. You finally made it in the gaming community. <laughs> yeah, people want it that bad, yeah. And then I'll bitch, I'll bitch about my uh, publisher at the time, whom I will not name. Mm -hmm. uh, but I found out uh, after uh, ending my association with them, I was talking to an agent about my various games and trying to get them, you know, licensed in different countries. And he mentioned a contract for, I think it was Dino Eggs, in a country that I had not heard it had been released in. And so I found out in that way that my publisher, my ex-publisher, had not reported any of the royalties for certain countries to which they sub-licensed. Ah, oh, that's terrible. <laughs> so I, you know... But, you know, I was at an Apple II reunion. Uh, I was very fortunate uh, and felt very honored to be invited to an Apple II reunion hosted by uh, John Romero and Brenda Romero down in, in Silicon Valley and had a great time. Had not met anyone there before in person. I had dealt with some of them indirectly over the years, email and, and such. But I met a number of people and we exchanged stories. And I tell you, these ripoff stories... <laughs> everyone's everyone from that era has those stories because it really was a wild west particularly in the beginning um where you know this is long before email and everything where if they sold your game in europe and they they could say well how are they ever going to find out i'm selling their game in europe so that was very rampant at the time sad to say wow well i just remember we've actually had uh talked about it on the podcast how rampant the Commodore 64 uh, bootleg scene was back in the day because, I mean, yep. the internet didn't exist, and yet, like, we had a Commodore in my household. My brother had tons and tons of these burned games, and I'm like, like, how, like, conceptualizing that now with the readily available internet and Google and everything, that didn't exist. So how was it that rampant? Like, it was crazy. Well, it... Yeah, it, it really took a lot of effort uh, to do the work, but also to get it around. Mm -hmm. um, I, my, I, I, actually, if any of your listeners can challenge this, uh, I, I would be interested in this. I have not heard anyone challenge my notion that Dino Eggs was the first game to be modded. Oh. And when I say modded, of course, I don't just mean that somebody in their privacy of their own house did something to it. I mean, they did something to it and got it around so that people have heard about it. I would say of probably about 5 to 10% of the people who uh, contact me about Dino Eggs first knew the game or exclusively knew the game 
as Dino Smurf. Dino Smurf. <laughs> Dino Smurf was a mod of Dino Eggs done by folks who hated the Smurfs, which were they've been they've come and gone over the years, but they were a very popular Saturday morning cartoon series in the in the mid eighties. Oh, yeah. And they were very easy if you were beyond a certain age to hate them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So they did a trilogy of, of uh, cracks and mods of popular games at the time. Dino Eggs was the first of the trilogy. Uh, Castle Wolfenstein was the second of the trilogy. Oh, cool. And that huh. became Castle, Castle Smurfenstein. Yes. <laughs> it's got a ring to it. <laughs> and so, uh, you know... It, you know, I don't know where you draw the line in terms of distribution and stuff, because obviously they didn't get the p- game published. They were just, you know, passing it through, as you say, you know, the channels that existed at the time, mm-hmm. not electronic or anything. But um, I think I think Dino Eggs was the first game that was modded in that way. And, and if anyone knows of an earlier game... Uh, let me know, but I'm going to claim. Right. I'm going to claim that it is until then. <laughs> do, do you want me to let you know my never-ending depth of useless video game knowledge? Please. <laughs> okay. Um, what year was Dino Eggs released? Eighty-three. In 1981, Miss Pac-Man was released. Miss Pac-Man is actually just a hack of Pac-Man to go faster, and then Namco and Midway Namco licensed it and made it into Miss Pac-Man. It was originally just a modification that was heavily distributed really? in the arcades. Yes, <laughs> that is, I know that just off the top of my head. Useless video game. Well, bless you, bless you. <laughs> That's just wow. off the top of my head. Uh, but but you still have the first console or computer based. Well, did the mod get anywhere other than to Namco? Um, yes, it was it was actually modded boards that were distributed in arcades back in the day. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, distributed hardware, <laughs> hardware that was distributed in arcades. Well, basically, like it was like the wow. car- it was the Carney days back in the day. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, basically, those guys would go around to collect the quarters. They would see that the Pac-Man games were starting to not collect as many quarters, and then they would these mod boards would go around to increase right. the interest because oh now Pac-Man's a little faster and the boards are a little more random. <laughs> well, I'm a firm believer in the in the in this that there is no such thing as trivia. If it's if it's meaningful to you, it's not trivia. So if you remember it by definition, it is not trivia. So exactly. I'm going to have to say that uh, Dino Dino Eggs was the first home computer game to be modded. Oh, absolutely, and maybe even home computer game slash console. Absolutely. Well, we'll see. We'll see what other what other uh, bits of information we get on that. So, so that's the challenge <laughs> to listeners: what home computer or console game was modded prior to 1983? Is there any? I don't think there is either. And you'll for, you'll forgive me for saying that they're challenged with two things. One is that, and the second challenge is to please go on Steam Greenlight and vote for Dino Eggs Rebirth. Yeah, it's on Steam Greenlight right now, and I'd love to get the game out to a broader audience through Steam. Even if you hate Steam, even if you think Steam is the evil empire, please go on uh, Steam Greenlight and vote for Dino Eggs Rebirth. Thank you. Yeah, and the thing that I was going to ask you about the Rebirth, are there any different challenges releasing a game nowadays in regards to like back in the day like thinking of how you used to release dynamics back in the day and now how you're releasing rebirth like you're basically promoting it on your own you're cutting out the middleman um you're going through steam now too to try to you know garner more you know publicity and things yeah but like what are the challenges nowadays for releasing a game on steam i guess in some broad sense the challenges are the same uh, but but 30, 32 years ago, there really wasn't any way to do it other than finding a publisher. I mean, now there were hobbyists who would put ads in some of the early uh, computer magazines and then put their games on cassette tape in uh, sandwich bags and all that. I mean, that certainly happened. I'm proud to say that I I did make a living at at the games for nine years, and awesome. so I it was mainly finding every possible publisher and sending them yes indeed physical discs and paper mail and uh, you know trying to get uh, attention of the publishers which at that time uh, 
My first game was published by Synergistic Software, run by a wonderful, wonderful fellow named Bob Clardy, who himself was a pioneer in adventure, uh, the, the transition from text adventures to graphic adventures. And some of his early games are really key. And others were serious software at the time. Microfun. Microfun did uh, Dino Eggs and mm-hmm. Short Circuit. Mm-hmm. Um, Sierra Online. Random House. Broderbund was a big... I think Broderbund kind of had the um, feeling at the time. They were kind of the Cadillac. Uh, they had some hits with Carmen Sandiego yep. and um, uh, Choplifter mm-hmm. and uh, some other games that uh, I really wished some of my games could have been Broderbund. And actually, I did work for Broderbund later on with online games. I did very early online games with uh, the company that became America Online before they were America Online. And Broderbund was a co-producer of some of those very, very, very early online games in the late in the late 80s. Uh, so back then, it was you had to get the attention of one of the big guys. And now it is, oh my gosh, well, you know, you've been through Kickstarters. You know how it is. It's just <laughs> twig by twig by twig by twig by twig by twig. It's just, in a way, all the doors are open, but now there's 82 billion doors. And which ones oh, yeah. do you walk through? Uh, so in a way, it's the same push, push, push. But years ago, it was just maybe you had 10 or 12 people to send things to and and pray. And now it's just kind of like, trying to figure out what sh- what new dozen things I can do and where to do them. Oh, exactly. And who do you want to promote it through? And, you know, yeah, where yeah. where's the best bang for your buck? It, literally. Because some of the, the places, if they want review copies, now you have thousands upon thousands of people you could send a review copy to. And, and, and I like I say, I am an introvert, so it doesn't come natural to me. I, I don't like to press. I don't like to push. I don't like to beg. I don't like to do this kind of thing very much. But I'm, I'm, I've reached out for some help. I have a, a professional person helping on the kind of press release uh, review copy side. Nice. And, uh, but it's still, you know, it's still a, it's still a pull. It's still a hard pull. I mean, people who remember the original game, they're sold. I mean, they love it, and I'm encouraging them to tell friends. Uh, of course, uh, but it's it's still a pull. It's definitely a pull to get attention because there's 82 billion games out there, and one third of them have the word vampire in their title, and the other, another third have the word <laughs> zombie. Uh, zombie in their title, and <laughs> and there you go. You know, it's just really really hard to get anyone's attention. Well, the the main thing for listeners is that if you're a fan of the classic arcade games like a Donkey Kong, Dino Eggs has that feel. And it was released in the early 80s, around the same time as Donkey Kong. So it has that same era feel, and Dave's already said that he has the classic modes. You can play the original style arcade, and are there online leaderboards for each mode? Uh, If we get on Steam, we'll certainly have that feature. Exactly. If we don't get on Steam, uh, my uh, programmer has made some arrangements to try to get that done without steam so either way we're hoping to do that yes yeah so so in other words if this gets on steam there'll be ways for you to compete with people online which is amazing you know taking a a classic arcade game arcade style game and be able to play it and get stomped by a giant dinosaur egg (laughs) and and then you can see your score compared to other people around the entire world it's an amazing thing about gaming nowadays, and it's a way for gamers to play a new style game like that. I mean, I talk about uh, hidden gems all the time. Dino Eggs is a computer hidden gem that a lot of people don't know about if you never had a Commodore or an Apple II. Right. Thank <laughs> you. Well, I appreciate your saying that, and, yeah. and it really has been a labor of love. We have done everything we can to be both very true to the original game and expand so that there's new types of boulders and new types of eggs and new types of spiders and new types of uh, of creatures and new types of fires. And, you know, the a strength of the original game, I think, is that I, I somehow 
you know, I had a tile system on the screen. Uh, so you had the kind of vertical energy and, and the horizontal energy, kind of like a chessboard going on the screen. Mm-hmm. And then somehow I came up with objects and creatures that just started clicking into interesting interactions with each other so that everything on the screen could kind of either affect or be affected by everything else on the screen in a kind of a rock, paper, scissors kind of way so that a boulder hides the eggs and Tim can tick, kick over the boulder and then the boulder can smash a spider, but the spider can abduct a baby dino and, but you can cut the thread of the spider and, you know, all these interactions. And we've tried to just make that richer in the uh, dino eggs rebirth, uh, add new types of all these objects, certainly new baby dinos. Some of them uh, fly, uh, some of them can run away from you. And, and so we're just trying to, make it true to the original and yet ever so much more. And and I think we've done a fun, fun job of that. See, that's an amazing thing. The whole um, interaction between the obstacles and enemies and things that actually hasn't been done quite at all in the eighties style games at all. Part of it was just trying to squeeze as much into that single screen as, as possible. Yeah. Uh, because this was before you could scroll a lot or, or get a lot of uh, different movement going. And so that's what kind of gives it a, as you play the game, it feels like you're drilling deeper into it. Right. You know, it's almost like the game, the screen has more depth because it doesn't have as much width or height. Uh, so you're, you're more like, oh, this is the puzzle here and I can drill into it deeper by by mastering where to go and in what order, which is kind of how Dino Eggs works. Absolutely. And I, I'm pretty sure Kyle never played this game back in the day, but Kevin, I know you had a Commodore. Did you play it at all back in the day? Yeah, I remember uh, I didn't have it myself, but I remember playing at uh, another person's house that also had a Commodore. It was really fun, and now that you talk about all that piracy back then, why I didn't ask for a copy, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I have uh, a lot of friends. I have a lot of folks who who love the game, and then after I, you know, exchange an email or two with them, then they'll often say, well, I guess I should admit, actually, rather sheepishly, that I... I never actually paid for it. You know, well, <laughs> That's okay. terrible. You know, it's the old say, if I had a nickel, you know, if yep. I, even today. If you had even a dollar today, for every, everybody that bought a, that played your game. <laughs> yep, you know, even real, today, uh, I, yeah. I hear from people all the time who say, I play a game of Dino Eggs once a week or every night or something. And so even today, if I got a nickel for every time. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's awesome that uh, that you played it as well, Kevin, because I know Kyle didn't have a Commodore, and unless he played it at, like, my house, it would have been near impossible. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had Apple IIs in my school, and I think in Kyle's school, too, but they didn't yeah. have Dino Eggs on it. Yeah, just Oregon <laughs> Trail back then. <laughs> yeah. Oregon Trail is some fish game. It's kind of cool. And number munchers. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean, my my brother, for some reason, uh, wanted to get a Commodore, so that's that's what we had, and you know, they sold to my parents as you know the whole learning computer, just like everybody else. But of course, all we played was games. <laughs> yeah. Well, your school should have had Dino Eggs because it's an educational game, don't you think? You find out what happened to the dinosaurs and why they became extinct. Exactly. Right. I mean that 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 should have been your your selling platform from your uh, your publishers <laughs> back in the day. That's so easy <laughs> in hindsight. Like, man, you should have promoted it yourself throughout the country, and you'd have been. Got your nickel. <laughs> been amazing. So, is there um anything else that you're working on, David? For any other games, or are you just focusing straight on Dino Eggs Rebirth right now? Well, right now, right now at this moment, it certainly is Dino Eggs Rebirth because um, this this will be. Um, this will tell me how this process works and, you know, how I, I might be able to revive uh, Crisis Mountain or Short Circuit or, or the other games. Um, you know, a number of things are in my head about possibilities. Uh, one of them is actually in harmony with things you were saying earlier about, you know, folks doing homebrew with Nintendo or homebrew with Atari 2600. Or Commodore. <laughs> or Commodore. I, you know, it really could be intriguing for me to actually go back to my 6502 code and just kind of do a special edition of the original code that then could be, you know, saved as a disk image and run in any emulator 
on browsers or whatever, wherever the emulators are, and and just kind of bring a little extra value to it, or and and or allow people. I know people hack it all the time and and change the number of lives and stuff. That's already been done, but just make it friendlier to do that. You know, just and make it all through the keyhole of the old Apple II. Uh, just nice. put it all through that exact same visual keyhole. Maybe just using the new uh, a new ability to go beyond 48k a little bit, but basically visually and in audio, st- staying true to the old uh, frame of the of the original 8-bit game, but bringing a special edition out. I think that could be a heck of a lot of fun. So you're saying there's a possibility of a sequel, even? <laughs> well. It would be fun. It would be fun to go back to all that and just kind of tweak and expand and put in more backgrounds or more a little more of this or that and or alternative this or that. And, but keep it very true to the limitations of the visual and the audio, uh, but just add value. And uh, I don't know, maybe I can uh, sell the disc images for a buck a piece or something. I don't know. <laughs> but that that's that's one thing I think of because I do think graphically somehow that was a sweet spot for me there was something about every image there had to be so iconic and so simplified that actually when you get too many pixels my artistic ability begins to take a nosedive you know when i'm dealing with a lot of pixels and a lot of colors i can still do some decent stuff but nowhere near as confidently as i could with those old chunky six colors when you have to push the limits yeah, there's yeah. something about uh, trying to transcend those limits that somehow brought out the best in me. So I am attracted to kind of revisiting that a bit, but I, I don't know if that's what will happen or not. Like I say right now, it's it's just doing the best as I can for 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 our mainly really uh, the programmer, Eric Faroe, who, uh, bless him, just has worked so hard on this game uh, mm-hmm. for several years and uh, just want to make sure he gets a decent nickel or two. Oh, yeah. Uh, And my recommendation would be is if you decide you're going to go to like a Kickstarter again in the future, is that offer something like that as a physical copy as a reward. It will sell like hotcakes. Original original programmer releases an original big box release of an Apple II game or something like I'd put that on a shelf. It'd be amazing looking. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. I, I think that's a great idea. And and uh, that's, you know, it's a possibility for the future, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And that'd be really, really cool. In in parting, uh, David, it's been great to have you on the show. Do, uh, Kevin and Kyle, do you have any questions for, for David? I know Kyle usually asks some crazy off-the-wall questions. Well, just um, as far as creating a game goes, do you know you're finished when you decide you know every, everything's perfect and i'm you know ready to release this <laughs> to the public or does it become a point where you know the deadline's coming up and we're good with what we have like how, how do you like look at the whole creation process of that yeah 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 that's a great great question and it, it applies to every every medium of creativity uh because we all know people or or uh, or i've heard stories about artists who are still working on their master's thesis or their doctorate thesis, you know, in their 70s or 80s, and then they never quite finish it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a. It, I guess it's it's a balance between those two. I mean, that sounds like a cliche, I guess, but it's true. You you can't wait until it's perfect. You just can't. Um, there's always some way to make it better. So you you have to just somehow be able to say, is this good enough, based on where it is and what the possibilities are for it being done today versus it being done a week from today or a month from today. And it, it just gets down to that, that uh, judgment call. There's still a bug in my Christmas games that I have never found. It's not a crashing bug, but there is a bug when two of the characters interact in the Christmas games, one of the Christmas games and some, random pixels show up on the screen that I can see, probably no one else can even see it. Mm. And I have never, ever, ever been able to find what that is. That's crazy. But it doesn't crash. It doesn't stop you from playing the game. And so I had to say very painfully, I'll never find this damn thing, but but people will still have fun playing the game. So 
it is a it is it's always a balancing act and and crisis mountain you know even as it came out people were already saying oh a game should have more backgrounds than that so that's why in dino eggs i specifically created that tile system so that each and every screen is different there's no two screens that are ever alike yep. in terms of the placement of ledges and things so that's what spurred me on to make the next game better because as the first game came out i knew immediately that it could have been better, but I had to change, uh, you know, refocus that energy on Dino Eggs uh, rather than delaying the release of Crisis Mountain. Yeah, that's. I guess that's what's so great about remaking a certain game too, because you can, in a way, do all the things that you wanted to do or you wish you could change, or maybe just make it fresh again in some kind of way. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's kind of like. Um, I, I do identify uh, I'll, uh, with George Lucas. You know, he keeps fiddling with the original Star Wars movies and he drives people's nuts because he keeps changing things. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and people hate him for, for making it that uh, that uh, Han Solo is not the first one who shot Greedo. Greedo, you know, that kind of, all that kind of right, stuff. Right, right, yeah. And, but I really identify with some of that tension because in this new game, uh, Dino Wings Rebirth, I am saying that Time Master Tim introduced the common cold into the dinosaur era. And that's what <laughs> killed the dinosaurs in the original game. It was measles. And I've already got people yelling at me uh, on the internet saying, you got it wrong. Don't you realize it was really measles? It wasn't the cold. It wasn't the common cold. How dare you change history on us? <laughs> yeah. How dare you? How dare you? So now I know a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of how George Lucas feels, but I changed it to the, to the common cold because I wanted to show a sneeze as a big gigantic visual sneeze in the new game uh, when it's ex going in the backstory of the game and explaining the backstory of Time Master Tim. And I thought, well, people don't sneeze with measles, so I, I have to make it the common cold. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, Jeff and I were laughing about how, um, how cool it is in uh, Crisis Mountain when the volcano e erupts. Yeah, yeah. It, it just has that missile command type feel, and it's always cool when those old school games at the very end when everything just explodes. The vector based line explosion. <laughs> it's just it's just it's awesome classic style. Now, when when you created that, how did you want it to go? Do you just just want to make like chaos or? Well, I. I used some of the uh, draw routines in the Apple ROM. Uh, there are some basic draw routines in there for vector stuff. And I, I think I started fiddling with those to see how far I could use them and how they could help me do certain things in the game. And then uh, when I came up with the uh, thought, well, what do I do for the explosion? I, exp I just experimented with every visual effect I could possibly get away with. And, of course, the speed of the screen uh, changes. The screen was always, always a huge limiting factor. And so when I go into the, like at the end of the explosion, where it goes into the flashing black and white, you know, uh, positive, negative, mm -hmm. at the end of the, the vector line explosion, it goes into black, white, black, white f flashing. And... You see, I can't change the screen from uh, negative to positive that quickly, but in Apple, you do have page flipping. So I had the ch chance to quickly change the back page to a negative image of the front page, and then all I'm doing is page flipping, and you can page flip as quickly as you want. You can even page flip qu quicker than it takes for the raster, uh, the... Um, the electrons to go from top bottom to a single frame. So that's not a limitation on speed. So if you're content with flipping back and forth between two full screens, then you can go as fast as you want. So that's the flashing part of it. The vector part of it, I just decided to start working with random numbers and see what I could do with it. And so it's a graduating, it's random, but a graduating radius of, of, of vector lines. And of course, I kept trying to make it as fast as I could. And I guess it came out reasonably well. But yeah, that's just kind of the result of experiments with uh, different raw materials that seem to be at hand in the machine. And I can imagine, like, with, because I write music and stuff too, it's that part was probably super fun to do because anything went, you know, you could just play with it in like any way and just make it as crazy as you wanted. 
Yeah, and you'd read you'd read articles in the in Apple uh, Talk and the different magazines. You know, it was it just a it was frontier in every direction. It was just oh, you can do a split screen in this way, or or here's how you mix this mode and that mode, and or here's how you can use. Uh, Apple did this kind of tortured thing where uh, up in the upper ranges of the of the 64K, of which the upper 16K was. Uh, was ROM, which is why RAM was only 48K. But within that ROM, you had pages within the one of the ranges. You had sub-pages within the ROM, and you could actually use some of that in certain ways. And I started using... Uh, the screen only used uh, so much of pages uh, from like uh, hex, hex 0 to hex 100 or hex 100 to hex 200. And there were like eight bytes at the end of like every third page that wasn't being used on screen. So you could actually use that for scratch pad memory space, even though it was technically speaking within the, the, the visual page range, but it wasn't visible on the screen. So <laughs> nice. all these little nooks and crannies things were just, it really was a front, like I say, frontier, a kind of a wild west in, in all directions. Wow. That's incredible. <laughs> It's amazing. Well, thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you bet. Thank you. So, uh, so Kevin, do you have any uh, questions for Dave? Um, the only one that I could think of that'd be pretty interesting. Was there any like um, games from back in the day that you played, or maybe influenced you to create your series? I mean, something that maybe you played. You're like, man, I really want to do this because you enjoyed playing certain games or anything from back then. Yeah, well, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Donkey Kong was an absolute, absolute inspiration. Dragon's Lair, the 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 video disc based game, was okay. was not a direct, you know, it's kind of its own thing because its technology was kind of a one off, uh, and uh, and yet the tremendous ambition of that was very inspirational. And I would say, let me just think, in in the realm outside of of computer games. Um, I would say uh, in the home computer area, uh, pinball construction set was just tremendously yes. polished. Oh, cool! Uh, tremendously polished. Choplifter, uh, what a what a you know a game that is simple in the best best sense of the word. That was a real inspiration. What was your favorite version of Choplifter? Uh, when you say version, you mean uh, platform? Or? Yeah, platform. Well, at home, I, I still have my Apple II here in the room here. I got my Apple II GS here. I got all my own games up on the shelf. <laughs> Just like us. Oh, yes. Uh, and my I had, oh, I had two Apple IIs, and, uh, a Plus, and then a GS, and they're both here. And my nephews, one of my nephews come up, uh, they're getting a little old now to play the old games, but they still, through the, all the years they came up here, they, they loved the games. You know, I was an Apple guy, so pretty much everything other than the coin-operated stuff, pretty much everything I too. saw, I saw on the Apple, yeah. Yeah, see, because, like, for me, like, the, the Commodore Choplifter is, like, my favorite, bar none from any version that I've played for any system. It's just the controls in that are perfect, and I've never, I never had an Apple II, so I couldn't really compare the two. Well, I think I mentioned to you, I, I got a an ec- detailed analysis comparing the Commodore 64 Dino Eggs to yes. the new Dino Egg uh, Classic, and it goes into amazing detail. Like you say, it's, and it does, it, it is the devil's in the details. It's the feel of the controls. It's the feel of the buttons. It's it's the, the interaction, the relationships of speed of characters on the screen. It's, it's actually... Uh, Amazing how nuanced all of that really is. With the Commodore, too, depending on the controller you have, if you're using the classic Atari 2600 controller, I mean, it's a you're using your right hand, and your left thumb is, is going to be the button, essentially. Whereas if you're playing it on any normal controller, your left thumb is doing the analog stick or the D-pad, and then your right thumb is doing It's the opposite hands are doing the work. Yeah, and so yep. like that's even different parts of your brain that are playing each version essentially. Yeah, back in uh, in the day, there was a, a thing called a Joyport, which a fellow at Sirius Software developed to make Apple's able to play games with Commodore style or Atari style uh, joysticks. And uh, I adapted uh, uh, DinoEggs for that controller as well as the Apple joystick. And I, I met at this Apple II reunion, I met uh, him. His name is Steve, Steve Wojta, 
W-O-I-T-A. And mm-hmm. now this same fellow, Steve Wojta, is working on Retro VGS. I don't know if you've heard of that project. Oh, yeah. Um, Absolutely. Oh, yeah. We about but that. he's now working on the hardware for Retro VGS. Wow. So really? It, in I a didn't way, it's all he was involved. That's Such awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know he was involved in that when I met him at the, at the party in June or July. Uh, but since then, I've seen his name pop up on the in one of the posts about the uh, retro VGS. And I said, oh my gosh, I just met him. And he's doing sort of the same thing now for retro VGS as he did for the Joyport and the, you know, original Atari joysticks way back when. So that's super interesting. It is amazing. Yeah. yeah, I'm actually associated with the retro VGS in a small way because uh, my Kickstarter, that was, you know, the, the Nintendo collector's guide, the um, NES game that's associated with it, which is going to be a brand new Nintendo role-playing game, Japanese role-playing game, we're doing a port for the Retro VGS, and we should be a launch title for the system. Wonderful. <laughs> so, yeah, we're, we definitely know about the Retro VGS. Um, that's yeah. tremendous. Now, that, that actually is a, a good podcast topic for maybe the next episode. But um, yeah. the retro VGS is is getting a lot of feedback in the community because of potential price increases. Because <laughs> they're they're doing a certain type of programming with cores for all these different systems, and uh, the guy who's running it, Mike Kennedy, uh, posted yes. that it could cost more if we're using it's like FPGA style um, architecture in it. And it'll it'll essentially make the system limitless and be able to last forever for and allow people to program their own homebrew games on it and everything. However, it may cost four hundred dollars. Oh wow! Which is essentially the same price as like a a new Xbox One or PlayStation Four current gen system. Yeah. And that's put like people like are thinking, you know, well, this is supposed to be like a retro system. They're comparing it to, you know, the clone garbage that's out there, which the retro yep. VGS is the opposite of. It's going to yeah. be, you know, yeah. amazing. But the thing is, is that people are wanting to spend, you know, 200, like sure. three, two, two fifty is what people want. 300 would have been pushing it and people would have still backed it. And the thing is, is that, you know, Mike Kenny was saying, well, I could cut things, but then it just wouldn't be as nice. Like, he's yeah. he's very torn yeah. because he wants to tinker sure. and make the ultimate system. Yeah, that's a tough yeah. one right there. I don't know what I would do. I mean, I don't know what I would do either, but he has a lot of backlash going at him. And he posted. Yeah, it's, posted it's complicated. Post, he posted really a good is. post today yeah. for, um, you know, like, obviously, this, this will air, this episode will air, you know, many weeks ahead of where we're currently at on Facebook. The Retro VGS will probably already have its Kickstarter going but when this gets posted. But he posted some good posts today because he's making some changes, and it should be a successful Kickstarter either way. Well, I hope so. He, I was introduced to Mike Kennedy by the fellow who's doing my publicity, mm-hmm. and uh, he's he's encouraging me to consider doing uh, Dynawags for for the retro VGS and I'm I'm still waiting to hear of course as as you're indicating it's all in flux about the platform and and the mm-hmm. tech specs and all that so but I'm open to the possibility it it's fun to keep keep a hold of that and see see what might happen over there Absolutely and it sounds like the like the um an individual pub, like game developer's dream to release on because essentially you could release in whatever quantity you want because uh, you know, Mike Kennedy, he owns the molds to the games and the production facilities, so he can essentially make them at cost, and it saves a lot of the middleman hoopla that you would go through with, like, going on the Steam Greenlight, for example, or, yep. you know, going yep. on the Microsoft, you know, like, trying yeah. to go their yeah. game. Yeah, the old uh, X, uh, Xbox Live Arcade and oh, stuff. Geez. Yeah, it's... it's I, I wish him luck. I really do. It's complex, and mm-hmm. uh, he'll have a lot of tough choices to make. But I, I wish him luck. It, it's, it's exciting. Well, he's definitely going to hit the collector aspect because I want to get it just from a collector aspect. <laughs> it's going to be amazing. And every game that's been announced, it's like, oh, it's a new platformer, like eight bit, eight bit, sixteen bit platformer. Like everything that we love to play on this show when we do our homework, which is every other episode we do a homework game. And it's like right up our alley. Every game that's coming out for the system is is going to be like a something that we would play. Like those platformers, yeah, it's mm-hmm. so classic and old school, you know. Yeah, and I mean he's doing it right. I just think that like his fatal flaw is going to be, you know, gaining the mass appeal, the mass market appeal. 
Yeah. Yep. It's going to be tough. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. And uh, hopefully it's great. And, you know, hopefully we're all able to release games on it someday. someday. <laughs> That's what I say. So, so David, uh, it's been awesome having you on the uh, the show. Um and everybody that's listening, go ahead, look up Dino Eggs Rebirth and support him. Definitely vote it up on Steam Greenlight so that way he can you know, release this game so we can play it on Steam. It'd be amazing. I want to sit there and compete with people on some online leaderboards. <laughs> That'd be great. Oh, yeah. That'd be great. <laughs> you know, and the game, uh, the game website is uh, DinoEggsRebirth.com, and that's, uh, Dino Eggs Rebirth is the Facebook page, too, so I'm easy to find. And, uh, yeah, I really appreciate being on here. This is great. I appreciate uh, the chance to chat with you guys. Oh, it's it's been awesome. And just so you know, you had a million great stories. <laughs> that's just yeah. the one. <laughs> like, that's, that's the thing. Like, I was like, oh, there's another good story. I mean, you, you got to have – you got to go to an event, an Apple II event with John Romero. That's outstanding. We had a whole Doom-like month. We were talking about Doom and mm-hmm. Romero's game. <laughs> John has been very helpful to me at various times in my career. He was an editor at uh, – uh, a software-based magazine called Soft Disk back in uh, the late 80s. And he published uh, on Soft Disk my early games in, in the magazine form and also some games that didn't get published elsewhere. I did a set of birthday games uh, that sort of modeled on the Christmas games uh, that he published in Soft Disk. So he's been a good friend of mine and helpful uh, from way back, yeah. That's amazing. Awesome. <laughs> and, and, and again, small world. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. That is crazy. So, yeah, as I said, though, we're completely unconventional. We kind of go where the river takes us, is what we always say, because it always makes for a much more interesting podcast for us. Very enjoyable. Very oh. enjoyable. I've enjoyed it very much. Uh, and it, so, thanks, Dave. And, um, Thank you, everybody, for listening. And as always, we uh, love to hear your comments, questions, emails, Facebook us, Twitter us, everything. Um, if you can answer uh, David's, you know, uh, question, we might be able to get you a, a, a VGBS prize. We got, we got lots of that. <laughs> we got lots of that sitting around. <laughs> All right, thanks, everybody. All right, thank Take you. Thanks. See ya. Thank you for listening to VGBS. We appreciate everybody taking the time to get through this whole uh, arduous podcast. We love it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If you want to correspond with us, you can email us at bgbspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we also have a phone number. It is 262264BGBS. You can leave us a voicemail, shoot us a text message. Um, whatever you want to do, correspond. Also, comment on us. Shoot us a message on Facebook, Twitter, Google+. Leave a message on one of Kevin's videos on YouTube. We love hearing what people um, think about the podcast. All right, see you later. Woo. Take it easy, guys. Later.